In recent years, the public perception of Christians has taken a dramatic turn for the worse. Of course, there's always been people who have said that Christianity is irrelevant to the real world in which we live. There have always been those who think that Christians are funny little people who still believe in fairy tales and fantasy worlds. They think that Christians are needlessly uptight and a bit prudish, but they're basically harmless. So you don't even need to merely tolerate Christians, you can simply ignore them because Christians are irrelevant. But in more recent years, at least within certain pockets, it seems that the perception of Christians has turned more negative. There are some who think that Christians are no longer harmless, but rather harmful. Rather than contributing to the world's healing, there are some who believe that Christians are contributing to the world's hurt. Their views are not merely old-fashioned or out of date, but they're oppressive because they are a threat to the emerging new public morality. And here's the deeper problem. The division does not merely run between Christianity and culture, but rather the division runs straight through the church itself. Because we live in a time of political polarization and cultural fragmentation. And the racial and social and cultural and political divisions of our wider world have seeped into our churches. And as a result, even Christians today are now willing to go to war against one another over issues of sex or race or politics or culture. Christians don't seem to have any qualms about eviscerating one another in print or on social media or in public. And here's the irony. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I attended Sunday school, and one of the songs that we were taught to sing goes like this. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and they will know we are Christians by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. But that doesn't seem to be happening right now. It seems that perhaps we should be singing, and they will know we are Christians by our hate. So it's a serious issue. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Well, we're in the midst of a series in which we're considering the distinguishing marks of an authentic follower of Jesus. We're examining what does it actually mean to become a disciple, meaning an apprentice or a student of Jesus and his way of life. And so today what I'd like us to do is zero in specifically on what Jesus has to say about love in John chapter 13. And as we do, we'll learn a few things. We'll learn what love is not, what love is, and how we get it. So if you'd like, let me invite you to open up a Bible to John chapter 13. You'll find our passage today printed in the order of worship as well as on page 900 of the Pew Bible. I'll be reading John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, this passage takes us into the upper room where Jesus has gathered with his closest followers one last time before his impending death on a Roman cross. And you can feel the intensity of this moment the night before his death. Judas has just left to do his dark deed. And now it seems as if Jesus is drawing the remaining 11 disciples even closer to himself. Once Judas is gone and the door is shut, he can reveal new things to them that he couldn't have said while Judas was still there. But he doesn't have much time. These final chapters in the Gospel of John are perhaps among the most intimate and the most important in the entire New Testament. Jesus has just warned his followers that he is going away, and where he is going, they cannot come. And so he proceeds to teach his disciples and all future followers, by extension, what it is that they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to carry on the mission that he has entrusted to them after his gut-wrenching departure from them. Now think about this. Think about the seriousness of this moment. And think about all the things that Jesus possibly could have said. What, has, what does he most want to impress upon his followers? What are among the final words that he will speak to them before it's all too late? Love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if you want to know what is the number one distinguishing mark of an authentic follower of Jesus, if you want to know what it is that's supposed to set you apart from everyone else, if you want to know how the world is supposed to know whether or not you are a follower of Jesus, this is it. Here's your answer. The answer is love. And the question is whether that is the first word that people would use to describe you. When people think of you, do they think of love? When people are asked what's the first word that comes to their mind when they think of you, what might they say? Perhaps they would say, you're smart, you're capable, you're competent, you're creative, you're hardworking, you're bold, you're outspoken, you're courageous, you're humble. Those are all good things. But Jesus is suggesting that the very first word that should come to another person's mind when they think of you is love. If you are a true follower of Jesus, then you should be famous for your love. But let's stop and consider what kind of love Jesus has in mind. The fact is that there's a form of love that's very popular today, which basically suggests that if you love someone, well, then you should 
be willing to support, encourage, and affirm any of their life choices, no matter what they might be, so long as they don't cause harm to themselves or to others. But if you stop and think about it, that only raises the question of who is actually in a position to determine what causes harm to a human being. On the surface, though, this sounds reasonable. It sounds reasonable to say that in order to love someone, you have to accept people as they are without any conditions. But that's not actually how God loves us. God's love for us is better than unconditional love. God doesn't love us unconditionally. God loves us contra-conditionally. Do you see the difference? God doesn't merely love us as we are. God loves us despite who we are and despite what we've done. So yes, it's certainly true that God accepts you right as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you where you are. God's love changes you. And if it hasn't changed you, well, then you haven't experienced it at all. And why is that? Because God's love is a holy love. God's love is a holy love. Which means that his love does not contradict his holiness. Nor does his holiness curtail his love. He expresses both his love and his holiness infinitely and simultaneously. So his holiness and his love do not contradict one another, but rather they reinforce one another. And if that's true, then that tells us that God is not an indulgent God who compromises his holiness or condones our sins in order to spoil us. No, he loves you in order to make you better. That's his mission. And therefore, God's love is the exact opposite of what we might call anything goes. Now, it's popular to say love is love, which is to suggest that any and all forms of love are valid, but you won't find that in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say love is love. No, the Bible says God is love, which means that the holy God defines what love is and how it is to be expressed. So if love is not holy, it's not love. Not by God's standard. But if that is what love is not, we need to go on to consider what love is. So let's drill a little deeper and consider what Jesus means by this command to love. Now, the thing that's very odd about this whole passage is that Jesus says he's giving us a new commandment. But how is this new? What is so new about this new commandment? It's not as if Jesus is suggesting that this is something that they've never heard of before. Of course they have. The Old Testament was not lacking in love. Leviticus chapter 19 is the place where God commands the Israelites, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the exact same chapter where earlier God tells his people, you must be holy as the Lord your God is holy. So what's so new about this new commandment? Well, there's three things that are new about it. The source of this love, the object of this love, and the effect of this love. So let's consider each of those in turns. First, let's consider the source. 
Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you also must love one another. Now, commentators will tell you that the word as can be used in the Greek to express both comparison as well as cause. Both comparison as well as cause. So in other words, you could translate that sentence to say, not simply, love one another in the same way as I have loved you. That would be comparison. But rather, you could translate it as saying, love one another from the same love with which I have already loved you. That's cause. We're not merely called to love in the same way as Jesus, but we're called to love from the same love, from the very same love with which he has already loved us. You see, God loves you first. His love not only precedes, but it enables all of your loving. Jesus offers you a well of love, and he tells us to keep on loving one another from that source. Keep loving one another out of the well of my love for you. And if that's true, then the only way to love others rightly is by continually drawing more and more and more from that well. So your first priority as a follower of Jesus is to let Jesus love you. You have to take his love deep into your heart and into your life until it becomes experientially real to you. You have to immerse yourself in it, soak yourself in it, because that is the spring out of which all your love for others will flow. So the first thing that is new about this commandment is he's telling us to love one another from the same source of love which he has provided. But the second thing that is new about this commandment is the object of our love. Our love is meant to be empowered by Jesus' love and it is meant to be directed specifically towards fellow followers of Jesus. Now Jesus, of course, is not suggesting that we should love our fellow Christians exclusively. He's not saying you should love fellow Christians to the exclusion of all others. We know that that can't be the case because Jesus is the one that reiterated that command from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he told the parable of the Good Samaritan in order to illustrate that your neighbor includes anyone in need. And he even went so far as to say that you should not only love your neighbor, but you should love your enemy. So love must know no bounds. But here he is commanding us to love our fellow followers of Jesus in a special way. And I wonder whether you have taken those words to heart. Is that true of your own life? John Calvin once said that you can't have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother. In other words, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you will demonstrate a special love for God's church, for God's people. And if someone were to examine your life, is that the conclusion that they would come to? That, that you harbor a deep, abiding love for fellow, fellow followers of Jesus? You see, this is where this command touches down. This is what makes it earthy. 
Dostoevsky once said that everybody wants to love humanity in general. Everybody says, oh yes, I love human beings, but it's very, very hard to love human beings in particular. And so I want you to stop and look down the pew. Look one way, look the other. Literally, go ahead and do it. Look a couple rows above and a couple rows behind you. When Jesus says, this is how the world will know who are my true followers, it is going to be because of these people that you're loving. It's not the people that look like you, that talk like you, that dress like you, that run in the same social circles as you. This is it. He's calling us to show deep, practical love, loyalty, and affection to this group of people. That is the object of this command. And then that brings us to this third point, which is the third thing that is new about this commandment is the effect that it will have on others. This love is the primary way in which the watching world will know who the true disciples of Jesus are. This is it. This is the ultimate distinguishing mark of an authentic disciple. And if you stop and think about it, there's something somewhat astonishing about this. Because this very command underscores the stunning humility of Jesus. You might think that if Jesus were going to say, this is how the world will know who are my true followers, it is because of their love for God or their devotion to me. But Jesus doesn't make it about himself. He makes it about us. This is how the world will know who are my true followers. It is your love for one another. That's how you put your discipleship into practice. And why might that be the case? Well, I think it's because Jesus gathers to himself people from all conceivable backgrounds and walks and stations of life. And when Christians love one another in tangible, practical ways, despite all the differences that might exist among us, and despite all the reasons that we might have to hate one another, it's nothing short of a miracle. It's nothing short of a miracle, and that is what will cause the world to stand up and notice. And without a doubt, this is what the world needs right now. So today I'd like to share a story that's appropriate for Juneteenth, it's appropriate for Father's Day, and it's appropriate for the theme of this sermon. There's a photograph of a black man named Tony Geddes in the same frame with a white state trooper named Jarrett Doty. And at first glance, if you were to look at this photograph, you would think that this is yet another viral photo of a police encounter of a traffic stop gone bad that we just can't bear to even look at anymore. Because Tony, the black man, is slouching in the passenger seat of a vehicle. His eyes are firmly closed shut and he seems to be wincing in pain. And it looks as if his right arm is being pinned to the door of the vehicle. And then this white state trooper is leaning into the window on the passenger side of the vehicle. His head is down, and he is clutching Tony's right arm. And when you look at that photograph, you, you can't stop but wonder 
what exactly is going on and how did these two men end up in this position? Well, this photograph was taken on March 28th. The person who was driving the vehicle was Tony's daughter, Ashley, a self-proclaimed daddy's girl. She talked about how her father was her hero and always had been. And the reason why she was driving the car that day is because she had gone to pick up her dad from the Duke University Medical Center where he was receiving chemo treatments for colon cancer. And she was taking him back home on Interstate 85 to Columbia, South Carolina. But all of a sudden, she hears sirens. She sees a flashing blue light. She realizes, oh my goodness, I've been speeding. So she pulls over. The state trooper comes out of his patrol car. He approaches the vehicle from the passenger side. They roll down the window. He asks for Ashley's license and registration. And Tony is far too weak from the chemo treatments to speak above a whisper, but he's able to utter these few words to the state trooper. This is my baby girl. The trooper goes back to his car, and then Ashley and Tony are waiting, 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 wondering what on earth is taking this trooper so long. Well, it turns out that Jared Doty was not reviewing Ashley's information from his patrol car. Rather, he was reviewing his own life. When he approached their vehicle and he saw Tony slouching in the passenger seat, he noticed that there was a pouch attached to his stomach. And he suspected what that was because he himself had worn such a pouch before. He had undergone a procedure to remove portions of his own colon to prevent colon cancer. And when he was recovering in the hospital after that procedure, he made a vow in light of all of the prayers and counsel he had received. He said to himself that if ever I am in a position again to touch the life of even just one person and to help them through their illness, I will do it. And so after contemplating his own life situation and considering the state in which Tony may be in. He went back to the vehicle and he approached Tony's window and he asked him if he was suffering from cancer. And he said yes. And then Doty proceeded to do something that he had never dared to do, never dared to do in 17 years as a state trooper. He said, could I pray for you? And Tony said, yes, I absolutely believe in prayer. It turns out that he was the chairman of the board of deacons at their church, that he and his wife often ran Bible studies out of their home. He had personally founded a ministry to mentor young black men. And so the picture of these two men, in which it seems like they're involved in some kind of altercation, in reality shows that Dodie is clutching Tony's arm in prayer. He, of course, didn't give Ashley a ticket that day, but before he left, he pressed something into Tony's hand and said, I just want you to know that there is someone else who is praying for you on your journey. And then he left. And after he was gone, Tony opened up his palm and sees that this state trooper had left a small little cross in his hand. 
He was too weak to even be able to speak, but tears began streaming down his face. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is this not what we need? So the question is, how do we learn to love one another in the ways that Jesus calls us to? Many of us might respond to a message like this by saying, I want to be that person. I want to be the hero of the story. I want to love like that. But the episode involving Peter that immediately follows this new commandment reminds us of the weakness of even the strongest Christian. It reminds us of the weakness of every one of us. Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going away and where he's going, they cannot come. But Peter intuits that Jesus must be talking about death. And Peter impetuously declares that even if everyone else lets them down, Peter never will. No, he will follow Jesus to the end. He will follow him even to death. He says, I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus has to explain to Peter that he is not the hero of this story. In fact, he will come perilously close to being the villain of this story. Because Jesus tells him, you think that you're going to lay down your life for me? The truth is that you will deny ever knowing me three times before the night is out. And sadly, I think that we're all a lot more like Peter than we would care to admit. I once had a conversation with a friend who told me that before he truly understood the grace of God, he thought that he was the kind of person that Jesus would want on his team. And we often think of ourselves that way. If Jesus is putting together a team, he's going to want to select me first. Peter thinks that the Christian life is mainly about what you do for Jesus. But Jesus corrects him. No, the main thing in the Christian life is what Jesus does in and through and for you. You think Jesus needs you. No, you need him. You're not the hero of the story. Jesus is. Before you can ever love in a way that will catch the world's eye, you have to let Jesus love you. And that's what brings you to the cross. See, how exactly does Jesus express the holy love of God? How can God express his holiness without destroying you? And how can he express his love without condoning your sins? How can God remain true to both his holiness and his love infinitely and simultaneously? The only way that God can satisfy his holy love is by sacrificing himself for you. God is so holy that Jesus had to die. There was no other way. And God is so loving at one and the same time that Jesus was willing to die. So Jesus goes to the cross in your place, dies your death as your substitute so that you might receive his holy love. And then he tells us that there is no greater love than this, than that one person should lay down his life for a friend. 
And the more you understand that, the more you take that into your heart and your life, the more you will become famous for your love. Let me pray for us. Father God, we recognize that we live in a time where Christians are often known not for their love, but for their hate. But we pray that change would begin with us. Help us to receive this new commandment as truly new because we recognize a new source to our love. Help us to learn to let you love us so that from the well of your love, we might learn to love others. And we pray that you would give us the grace to specifically cultivate a love for your followers, despite all the differences that might exist among us, despite all the reasons that we might have to hate one another. Because that will be the way in which the watching world comes to know who are the true, authentic followers of Jesus. Father, we need you. So love us and teach us to love one another from that love. We pray in Jesus' name.